Welcome to this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Greg Marshallden, and today we are going to talk to Mary Janigan about her new book on how wealth is shared and not shared on a regional basis through the history of equalization in Canada. Mary Janigan is well known as a journalist and author. She was a journalist for three decades, including a decade spent on Parliament Hill. She even received a National Newspaper Award for analyzing the Constitution Act 1982 clause by painstaking clause. In recent years, she has turned herself into a historian, getting her MA in history at York University in 2009 and publishing her first history book. It's entitled, Let the Eastern Bastards Freeze in the Dark, the West versus the Rest Since Confederation. This was published in 2013, and she won the J.W. Defoe Book Prize for it. She then completed her PhD in history at York University in 2017. Her thesis was transformed into a book that we are going to talk about today. It's called The Art of Sharing, The Richer Versus the Poorer Provinces Since Confederation, published by McGill Queens University Press in 2020. Mary, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm always interested in what motivates an author to devote themselves for so long to one subject. So Mary, what brought you to this subject and why were you willing to invest so much time and energy in it? (laughs) Well, it took me a long while to realize that equalization was really the foundation of a modern federation. Without equalization, you cannot have today's social programs, you cannot make sure that all the governments, the provinces, are able to deliver them. It took me a long time watching federal provincial meetings to see how important these grants were to treasurers, how everybody began arguing about these very arcane topics, and but I did not know where equalization came from. I wanted to know when it started. It turned out there were no histories of equalization and how it began. So I began digging and going back further in time, and I discovered pretty soon this really arcane topic spilled into so many other political, economic, social, and cultural areas. It was a look at Canada and really the world. I loved it. So what was uh, the main question that you were trying to answer in all of this, given the huge amount of archival research you did in Australia and Canada? I wanted to know how it began out of the blue in 1957. How far back did it go? And it turns out, of course, it goes back to Confederation, even before Confederation, when the poorer provinces didn't want, well, smaller provinces really, didn't want to join because they were sure that they would be swamped by Quebec and Ontario. They feared that they would lose funds, and they were right. So Ottawa tried to convince them to join Confederation by subtly increasing their subsidies. And this battle over subsidies, the battle was really 
Are the provinces equal partners in confederation, or should there be equity in confederation to help the, to help the poorer ones? And this went on for decades, meeting after meeting, huge fights among the provinces. It was an education in how a federation could fall apart if the partners cannot share. That's how far it went back. And I went to Australia because it became a model for Canada. And don't forget, there were only a few federations at the time. And Australia and Canada regarded themselves as sister dominions. So as sister dominions, they looked to each other all the time. So I had to see how the idea began in Australia and how it began in Canada. Australia did it in 1933. Canada waited until the mid-1950s before establishing grants. Uh, it was a fascinating exploration. I'm sure it was. And looking at your sources and the depth of your research, I was really quite struck by how deeply you went into all of this. Thank you. But for our listeners, can you just describe what you mean by equalization? What is the, the definition of equalization in the Canadian context? As a, a friend of mine once joked, he said, there are only six people in the country that understand equalization, and uh, it's just about impossible to deal with everyone else, including the politicians, <laughs> because they don't understand what it is. So can you just tell us what it is? Sure. Equalization ensures that the poorer provinces can deliver roughly equivalent services for roughly equivalent levels of taxation. It's the formula that throws everyone off. It's federal taxpayers' money, all provinces, and it is delivered by a constantly changing formula to poorer provinces. It's based on revenues, what they collect in taxes, and they keep adding taxes to that list. There are probably only a few in Ottawa and the Finance Department who really understand it. And they like that. It suits them. It's very hard for the provinces to deal with one another on equalization in public meetings. It's almost inexplicable. And yet the treasurers know how desperately important it is. It, it makes huge percentages of revenue in the maritime provinces, for example. It ensures that we can stay together because we're not squabbling as much as we might be doing where it did not exist. Well, indeed, I don't think we'd have a country were it not there. And so just to be absolutely clear, this is only revenues collected by the government of Canada, not provincial revenues, only revenues at the federal level, and then redistributed to the provinces based on this formula of estimating revenue capacity. Is that correct? That's right. It's based on fiscal capacity, and it is arcane, but premiers like Jason Kenney cannot say that Alberta is sending money to the other provinces. It is Albertans amongst every other Canadian. 
who are sending money to the poorer provinces. Every other federation except the United States has an equalization program of some kind. It's how they stay together. It's the federal government, or based on a formula, as in Germany, richer states, redistributing to poorer members. It ensures that if I'm in Prince Edward Island, I can get good medical service. I don't have to move to Ontario to get it. And similarly, it, it ensures as well that Ontario is not flooded with people seeking medical services. That is an example. It just means services can be roughly equivalent and therefore, to some degree, keep people in place for the right reasons. So um, the model of equalization that Canada adopted, in a sense, became its own model, but uh, it was influenced and looked at a number of models. And I, and I take it that based upon your research, the model that was most influential was the one that originated in Australia and that established the Commonwealth Grants Commission. Can you explain this? That's correct. Western Australians did not want to join the Commonwealth to begin with in 1901. They were kind of herded into it by the British. Once in, they were discontent. Um, many of the residents knew, well, everybody knew that they could get cheaper consumer goods and cheaper machinery if it were not for the tariffs that the eastern states, the richer states, had put on imports. So this discontent rose and rose until in the 1930s, there was basically a vote on whether or not to secede. And two out of three Western Australians voted to secede, 1933. They were very feisty. Many were the descendants of convicts that Britain had transported to Western Australia to work in the mines, and they were really fed up. So the Commonwealth government scrambled. It developed something called the Commonwealth Grants Commission. Uh, the head of it was not uh, the chief divisor of the plan. They were able to call on the services of a very remarkable Australian called L.F. Giblin. And Giblin had been a member, well, he'd been very close to the Bloomsbury Group. He'd been at Cambridge. He'd done virtually everything that someone of his generation could do, from gold mining to forestry. But he was also a mathematician and a very revered economist. And he devised the Commonwealth Grants Commission based on a very quirky formula that he that he essentially adjusted, but it was based on the revenues that each state collected, and laterally a bit on their taxes. And it worked because it was seemingly a neutral commission, and there weren't a lot of conditions on how the money was given out. People appealed in the poorer states, three of them, and they got the money. When Canada came to look at this example, of course, it wouldn't work for Canada at the beginning because, number one, they wanted to put conditions 
the central government did on the distribution of revenues. And number two, Canada was a bit more wary of basing its grants on provincial spending. After all, province could start spending a huge amount of money in one area, confident on the fact that it would get it back or a portion of it back from the feds. So Canada went to revenues as a basis for its calculation, how much each province was collecting in taxes or putatively collecting its capacity to collect taxes instead of uh, what it was spending that money on. Given the attraction of this uh, model, but also the unique Canadian situation, including the concern about uh, by the federal government of how provinces might behave, uh, can you just go back and describe the nature of the coalition that was in favor of some kind of regional equalization in Canada, maybe starting with the, the Great Depression and then working your way through the post-war reconstruction. That was really interesting. I traced all the groups that began pressuring Ottawa for some kind, uh, an expanded kind of social security. In the depression, the provinces could barely afford relief, but there were dreamers, there were idealists, there were people who started to see social security as a moral right as a right of citizenship as opposed to charity. They began pressuring Ottawa, asking for expanded programs. They did not distinguish between who would give the program. Indeed, what I discovered is nobody really, or very few, understood the central problem, which is that you might create uh, health care, hospital care in Ontario, but New Brunswick couldn't afford to deliver it. So that the central problem was fiscal inequality among the provincial governments. But nobody asked for that. They just kept asking for social programs and not zeroing in on the problem. Well, of course, when we got, it was women's groups and it was trade unions, it was teachers' federations, there were academics, there were some really fine civil servants in different provinces who understood how important this is, but they were a minority, and they really could not get through in the midst of the Depression, especially since very few governments even understood that in a depression, perhaps the remedies of Keynes might work, that governments could spend in order to help pull provinces' people out of depressions. So it took to getting into wartime. And even then, Mackenzie King was very unwilling, Prime Minister Mackenzie King was very unwilling to move. He introduced programs that Ottawa could single-handedly deliver, such as family allowances, and then later, unemployment insurance. This depended upon Ottawa. It didn't mean sending revenue to the provinces. But, you know, as the war went on, 
people began became aware in Canada of what other countries were doing. They already knew that Franklin Roosevelt had instituted social security in 1935. In Britain, they saw the beverage report looking at a universal panoply of social services. And in Canada, um, the Marsh Report in mid-war asked for a wide expanse of social programs, healthcare, educational help. So there was a growing pressure on governments to do something, to try to resolve what was happening to people who were sliding through the cracks. And after the war, Mackenzie King offered faint-heartedly a green paper, which offered a number of these programs, particularly health care, hospital care. But it went nowhere, partly because the provinces couldn't agree and partly because Mackenzie King simply couldn't bring himself to change the role of government to that extent. Ottawa was trapped between two opposing pressures. On the one hand, there were these advocates who wanted social policies. And on the other hand, there were some provinces, including Quebec, which relied on the Roman Catholic Church to deliver social services, which were resistant to these ideas. And this pressure continued into the immediate post-war era. And uh, just before the war and uh, operating a little bit into the war was the Royal Commission on Dominion Provincial Relations, commonly known as the Royal Sirwa Commission. Uh, it actually brought together some of the people that you mentioned as the coalition in favor of equalization, uh, and they provided their best judgment and evidence on the issue. And in the recommendations of the Rowell Sirwa Commission, there was a kind of an equalization formula put forward. Uh, and in fact, uh, the idea of national adjustment grants. Uh, was constructed in a way that, using uh, language that we still use, poor provinces could provide roughly comparable services at roughly comparable rates of taxation. So how influential was the, uh, the Rowell Sirwa Commission? I know that Mackenzie King uh, clearly uh, didn't adopt it in some ways, but... Uh, it was influential in the long term, was it not? It was. You're quite right. Um, Mackenzie King was horrified by it. It was an idealistic blueprint of a federation. It certainly would never have suited Canada. It had it. It advocated really a strong central government. It saw revenues, key revenues, centralized. Uh, the provinces dependent on Ottawa for a fair amount of funding. One of the, the key things that it did, however, was propound this idea of national adjustment grants in order to compensate provinces for all the revenues they would give to Ottawa. King saw constitutional changes. He saw 
horrific battles with the provinces. He knew some of the provinces would never, ever surrender those revenues. But the report remained influential for a lot of reasons. One, it was a snapshot of what Canada looked like in the 1930s. It did not even conceive of an idea of a wealthier Canada, but which was really a precondition of equalization. You had to have wealthier provinces. You had to have more economic growth and revenue. But it did see these grants as lifesavers. They would go based on, once again, spending. So it would be health, education. They would look at how each province was spending each money, its money and adjust the grants that way. I did not think that it had as much influence as it did initially when I began researching this book. But like Australia, it kept popping up. Its models kept popping up. And the reason it had long-term influence was because working, amongst other reasons, working on the Royal Commission as the Francophone Council was future Prime Minister Louis Saint Laurent. And working with him in the research section of the Royal Commission was John James Deutsch who later became a senior treasury official in the federal government. Both of them understood this concept cold. So they knew there was a model to rescue poorer provinces from uh, inability to do anything that would be close to a social program. They, they pulled them out. Well, and in fact, you argue quite persuasively, not only in the book, but also in a chapter in Patrice Dutille's edited book on Louis Saint Laurent, uh, that he was uh, not only very personally responsible for devising equalization, but he viewed it as his most important public policy contribution to the country during his tenure in office. And I tend to agree with that. I think it was probably his most important contribution, but he's rarely been given credit for this. Can you tell us why, and can you tell us exactly what St. Laurent's contribution was as prime minister? Patrice Dutille rescued St. Laurent from the reputation that he had been simply Uncle Louis. He was not an avuncular non-entity. He was actually a very eloquent and sophisticated lawyer. And he rebuilt the architecture of fiscal federalism for the 20th century. He was superb. When I read the memoirs of some of his senior mandarins, I realized that they were claiming that Louis Saint Laurent simply had an idea of taking money out of the grants for the tax rental deals, the compensatory grants, and giving them to the poorer provinces, whether or not Ottawa collected their taxes. 
that was ridiculous. I knew it. His senior advisor, the closest person to him, said that Louis Saint Laurent regarded the creation of equalization as his finest achievement in Dominion provincial relations. And of course it was. First of all, he had worked with the Royal Commission, Raoul Sirwa. He understood the concept of national adjustment grants, which help poorer provinces deliver social services. Number two, the senior person he worked with at Treasury had been at that Royal Commission too, as the director of research. Louis Saint Laurent understood these principles cold. I then went through the cabinet records. Louis Saint Laurent chaired cabinet subcommittees on equalization on fiscal federalism. He had ideas about fiscal federalism. He knew where he was going. He understood that if he was ever going to be able to institute national social programs, the poorer provinces had to be able to participate. He devised it. And Jack Pickerskill says that he even convinced his finance minister to support the principle. It was Louis Saint Laurent's idea, and he saved the Federation with that idea because suddenly Quebec was not losing out on federal grants because it refused to allow Ottawa to collect its taxes. It was his creation totally, and the cabinet records and his closest advisors back up this assertion. Why is he not getting credit still? At the time, nobody understood exactly what he'd done. The ones who understood, Ontario and the Maritime Provinces in particular, were too busy complaining. The advocacy group simply wanted social programs. They didn't understand that the main hindrance was the inability of the poorer provinces to join national social programs. This has continued to this day. The complaints about how much anyone was getting have obscured the basic principle. These payments keep Canada together. Canadian taxpayers share with poorer governments, so poorer governments can provide services to their people. It's a major, major accomplishment. It is the glue of Confederation. And Louis Saint Laurent is a hero, even though he is not seen as such. Well, he never got credit for it at the time. And historically, uh, he has not been given credit for it uh, over time either. Um, so why was this? I have several theories, but the main one is there was so much disagreement at the time it was instituted. Wealthy Ontario really resented the amount of money that Ottawa was dis distributing to the poorer provinces. The poorer provinces didn't think they were getting enough money. Louis Saint Laurent lost the election. He had confidently thought he would win. And yet 
Oddly enough, fiscal federalism, for perhaps the only time in Canada's history, became a centerpiece of that election. And the provincial premiers trounced Saint Laurent instead of giving him any credit. Meanwhile, the very coalition that had fought for equalization, I'm sorry, for social programs, didn't recognize what equalization had done. It had permitted the social programs to be established, but they would not credit Saint Laurent for that. I think they didn't understand it. <laughs> um, looking at some of the letters that were delivered to Saint Laurent, it's clear that they didn't make the connection between equalization and Canada's ability to provide social security to its citizens. It became equalization is something nobody pays attention to enough. And yet it is the foundation of Canada. It is the foundation of the modern Federation of Canada. Now the formula I understand gets changed every five years. Um, does the formula today bear much resemblance to the formula that was first instituted by the Saint Laurent government? None whatsoever. <laughs> the cabinet had great discussions about the formula in 1956. They didn't know what to do. They, they were struggling to figure out if they could find a formula that would somehow, somehow, be explicable to their constituents. In the end, no one asked them about it. And in the end, they didn't really understand. And so when the Premier of Ontario and the Premiers of the Maritime Provinces began to attack Saint Laurent, it was almost impossible to explain how fair this was. They decided to base it on three tax revenues collected by the two wealthiest provinces, the per capita. So they based it upon British Columbia and Ontario, the average per capita collection, which of course meant that because it was an average, British Columbia got some money, Ontario got nothing, it was left out. Today, there are dozens of calculations that are done to determine fiscal capacity. And they attribute to Alberta the collection of a sales tax, for example, which it does not have. This is one of the reasons Alberta is so upset today. There are so many different calculations that at one point, several decades ago, there was one civil servant in Ottawa who really understood it. And at one point, he actually agreed to postpone a tennis game to explain it to the federal cabinet. He added, quite correctly, but as a joke, they won't understand it anyway. <laughs> well, equalization was made a part of the Canadian Constitution uh, in 1982. And so it's uh, probably going to be very difficult to fundamentally change it in terms of uh, reducing its impact or eliminating it. But still, there seem to be a lot of provinces that do not like the program, even though they don't have to raise the revenue for it. Um, 
But I really wonder about this, whether it's a minority of very vocal provinces or a majority of the provinces that are unhappy about it. What's the, been the historical trend in terms of provincial government support of equalization, and has it increased or diminished with time, do you think? Uh, Canadians in surveys, by Veronics, for example, do support it. Uh, at least they support the principle of sharing. The formula itself should have been renewed last year, but the former finance minister unilaterally decided to continue it for another five years. That leaves a number of issues unaddressed. I think that the squabbling about equalization has remained relatively the same, except I suspect it's going to get far worse next year. That's because in the midst of a pandemic, they, the economy has not grown. The provinces are all in terrible shape and resentments are going to increase. It's the principle enshrined in the constitution, no details. So you have a situation where they could adjust it. They could make changes. Ottawa could decide not to keep attributing key revenues to certain provinces and therefore making it an, a sure thing <laughs> that they will be seen to have higher fiscal capacity than they actual actually have. Ottawa could make a number of adjustments. It could change the timeline on which it calculates how much revenue each province has collected. Uh, Tom Kershane and his daughter Teresa have put out a very good paper on changes that could be made. But with the pandemic, I could see the squabbling getting far worse next year. Just um, resentment. They wouldn't be so much asking for changes as that when they table their budgets, they are all going to be talking about how strained their budgets are and how much they resent how other provinces are doing. I, I think in the past, resentments rose and fell in accordance with economic conditions. And we haven't seen anything yet. We probably haven't, but all the federal government would have to do is say, we're not going to distribute any money and would probably get an even more negative reaction. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but Mary, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a real pleasure. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's an honor. Well, my guest today was Mary Janigan. She is the author of The Art of Sharing, The Richer Versus the Poorer Provinces Since Confederation, published by McGill-Queens University Press in 2020. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca where you can become a subscribing member and help support the preservation and publication of documentary history in Canada.
If you like what you've heard, let your friends know by forwarding this podcast through the social media of your choice. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society. We want to also thank the Hudson's Bay Company History Foundation, the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, and a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, the University of British Columbia Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. My name is Greg Marshallden. This interview was recorded on November 27th, 2020, in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic. It was produced by Jessica Schmidt.